3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. Uh, Welcome to another week on uh, Monday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR. And in the studio this morning, we have myself, James, and Jackson. Yep. We're both here. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Another week begins. How's your week been, the previous one? Uh, quite good, yeah. I um, started the weekend off, I feel like we've started the last few weeks by giving a sports roundup, but it, I guess it is getting close to September, although it might not matter for Bombers supporters. But uh, Geelong, you know, lost on Friday, but it was a great game, and I think that, um, you know, had some friends over by the fire to watch that. It was a nice way to start the weekend, and then... I on uh, Saturday I went to the Jazz Lab in Brunswick and saw some jazz. It's a very ah. nice venue there. Cool. Spoken like a true entitled Geelong supporter, you can lose and it just washes off your back because you know you've just got another finals campaign coming up with all your overpaid superstars. But as we struggle to come out from you know the AFL attack where we were set back years and years, um, it's you mean the. Cheating. Oh, yeah, the systemic doping. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, uh, We lost to Hawthorne, which is just brutal. It just really takes the wind out of an Essendon supporter's sails. They're a horrible club with horrible values, Uh, except the winning. They win all the time. No, no Geelong supporter is uh, a fan of Hawthorne winning, so we've got that in common. Yeah, but um, I I was um, happy over the weekend, uh, over the week, I should say, to see a little bit of... um, laying the groundwork for stepping back away from these massive company tax cuts that uh, the federal government have been trumpeting for years, uh, months and months. Um, It was really nice to hear them say that the electorate might think it's not a priority at the moment, considering, you know, you open up the age this morning and uh, a quarter of Australians, uh, a quarter of Australian families have less than $1,000 in savings. Um and are spending more than their income each month. Um, So a $50 billion handout to big business who are recording, as as usual, year-on-year record profits uh, seems like a crazy idea to me. Well, we've got a a good show again today, and I hope everyone enjoys the show. So coming up at 7.30, we've got an interview with Jacqueline Doughty from... She is the curator of the State of the Union exhibition that's mm-hmm. currently on at the Ian Potter Gallery. Uh, it, looks, it looks at current uh, connections between artists and the union movement, but also specifically at the 1930s during the Depression and the 1970s during the Green Bands and the BLF. Um, yeah, just some really there is some really interesting connections between art and unionism, and I want to have a chat with her about what the situation is like today because I know historically there were opportunities for artists to get 
grants from the government that were auspiced through community organisations like unions. So they could all, Trades Hall had full-time artists, which was pretty exciting, work you know, solely on workers' campaigns. And, yeah, interesting to hear what the, what the situation's like today from her. And then we have our regular program, Over the Wall, which is this week talking about, uh, well, speaking from a conference around how to fix some of the issues with the NDIS. And then at 8 o'clock, we're joined by HOSPO voice member Anna, who's going to be chatting to us about uh, what the union, you know, HOSPO voice, I guess, is. Some of the things, uh, hopefully people have seen some of the campaigns and things that they've been running. So I talk about that and the hospitality industry in general. But to kick off the rest of this segment of the show, let's get into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty gritty now. One, two, nitty gritty now, yeah. Well, yes, that music does signal alternative news and I'll kick things off by having a bit of a chat about a couple of TV shows that I've been watching and it's a slightly different in, in their in their format, but I'll just put them out there and we can have, I guess, a little bit of a chat about both of those. The first one is uh, second season of The War on Waste, which I think has been a really interesting program and in the way that it's impacted on Australian society, I think is, is can't be understated how much that is. And so perhaps some criticisms that it's not attacking the system as a whole or, you know, about we're putting too much emphasis on consumer choices and not corporations and government, but can't be, uh, I think it's still, yeah, it's having a really positive impact. And the other show is Who is America, which is the Sasha Baron Cohen's new series, which is uh, the fourth episode of that will be out today. And that is a slightly different, I guess, take on the world. But nonetheless, it is having a huge impact in America, particularly where he's gone undercover and really exposing American politicians and other people, kind of racist people that are you know, I guess part of the new America and exposing them for who they are, really. Uh, people have been upset with the way that he's gone about things, I guess, and that that he's tricking people into displaying a certain persona. But they're, they're displaying their true colours, I think. it's Yeah, I think it's really, it's great satire. Can I ask, I haven't seen the show, but 10 years ago, Sasha Baron Cohen had a huge profile with Borat and... Bruno and other characters. LEG. LEG, you know, going back further. But, I mean, in America, you know, there was a time where he was largely unknown in America. He could go up to people that have no idea who they were talking to. How has he navigated his celebrity, his level of celebrity in getting people off guard? It's it's funny that you say that people are saying they're being tricked. That was the same response from those during Borat, those college students that he picked up who made horrendous statements about slavery and um, 
you know, that, that ending it was a mistake and just, you know, that they, they were drinking at the time. But, you know, what came out was just some awful opinions. And they sued him, I think, successfully because he shared, plied them with alcohol and then got them to reveal their true selves, as alcohol can do. Well, the, these people are not vulnerable college students. These are um, Dick Cheney. Uh, is been interviewed in one. Bernie Sanders was in the first one. So Although, how does he get them? They surely they'd be. Well, he's in. He's in. Co- he's in. Um, like uh, disguise or costumed. He's in character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not obviously Sasha Baron Cohen, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that yeah, there's a lot of. I guess the trickery of some of those things is interesting and could perhaps spend a lot of time trying to dissect how that happens and the connections he's able to get to have some of these. Really high-profile people yeah. on the show. Sarah Palin, I think, is on a future episode. I wonder what his outreach method is, like what he says to their media managers to get them in a room. I don't know. Yeah, but I think what what's really I think what's really interesting is about the exposure that he's giving to these people. Some of these people are serving people of Parliament uh, of the you know U.S. Senate Congress. and things like that, Congress and. What the the people the things that these people are saying and the ridiculous things that these people are doing exposes the kind of absurdity of their politics and you know we've just seen in Australia that over the last few weeks we've seen uh, Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux touring and then we saw Blair Cottrell on Sky News last night being interviewed on mainstream news network who's known mm. uh, not for the first time not for the first time was it Channel Seven by any chance it was Sky News Sky News. So, in Australia, we're giving platform, and Lauren Southern was on that same network uh, last week, giving a platform to people that are, you know, known members of the far right, fascist supporters. That, and then, you know, these kind of similar people, you know, not that they are all fascists, but people of the far right are upset when a comedian tricks them into saying the things that they actually believe. And I think that, that that is a really interesting thing. But it's all contextual, isn't it? Because one of the gross things about the current political climate is that in in an environment where those commentators feel like they're amongst allies, they will say those things proudly. Mm. You know, we have just just uh, last week, I think Andrew Bolt went on a rant talking about a tidal wave of immigrants mm. arriving. Um, uh, he also, you know, very specifically kind of named out the percentile of people of the Jewish faith, faith living in Caulfield, spoke about the amount of people um, uh, from the the subcontinent, India and Sri Lanka, living around Dandenong. Like, this this type of language is um, incendiary, you, could, you know, considering the reach that he has. And, um, yeah, it's uh, you worry as, as the far right grows, as, as they're given more and more of a platform, you know, quote-unquote, more moderate voices are given licence to make uh, more outlandish statements as they test the waters. So it's... what what Can I just ask, what what does he get? Dick, does he get Dick Cheney to, to say that he did organise 9-11? <laughs> what, the interview with Dick Cheney, I guess, is he... So he has one of the characters is he's an ex-Israeli soldier and so he has this larger-than-life kind of um, character that does that. One of the things that that character tries to bring out in the first episode is the kindergartians, so trying to train um, three- and four-year-olds to use automatic weapons to stop uh-huh. other 
kids in kindergarten well, that have guns. That would make the kindergarten safer. I mean, the more toddlers so, that have guns, the more chance one of them will find a trigger and aim correctly. Yeah, so there's a really take down that racist vicious. way in which they try to portray that um, that segment. But Dick Cheney is, so with that same character, I, I guess what the, the thrust of what he does with Dick Cheney is really talk about the torture that they used during the Bush um, administration. Mm-hmm. So, and Cheney tries to refer back to other words of what they call, which I can't remember at the moment, but he just keeps calling it torture. And so he's just putting it out there. It's a lot of it, the political message is kind of subtle in a way, I guess, but if what you what the underlying uh, message from that interview is saying is that Dick Cheney and George Bush in you know in the eyes of this interview were torturing people were responsible for torturing people in under the guise of the war on terror and that's actually a really serious and political message that's being put forward underneath uh, satire and and humor and that's actually why these people are upset because they're they're, uh, what they're doing is being articulated in a way and being shown for the you know terrible decisions that they've made as people. Mm. And they're removing some of that uh, linguistical, political obfuscation that's so common where we walk around and mm. sideways of the issues rather than naming them for what they are. Well, and the war on waste, I think, has had... We saw, you know, the plastic bag ban. We saw a lot of those things that happened from season one of The War on Waste. Season two is two episodes in. And there's just some really great innovation of, like, getting getting an understanding of technology and things that are available and the possibilities of things that we could be doing if we were investing more in those kind of things as opposed to, you know, other military and, and fossil fuel industry that we're investing in. If we were able to go into this technology... There's actually a lot of things we can do there. It is a really interesting debate. Like, I've got to say, I think the war on waste is fantastic as a conversation starter. The amount of people, um, like, for example, I work in a school, in the workplace, so many people talk about the show, talk about, you know, that trying to go plastic-free themselves, you know, that they're inspired by the content that um, Rue Castle and, you know, the rest of the team are making. And I think that's really commendable. But it does, as, you, as you've already touched on, it's a broader discussion, you know, this this balance between individual responsibility and the responsibility of states, the responsibility of governments and collective responsibility. And, you know, in terms of big change, and that's what we need, you know, we you look at how prevalent environmental catastrophe is around the world at the moment. We I think a thousand homes lost in California over the week. I think it's forty seven degrees in Portugal at the moment. There's tremendous drought here in Australia. I heard some farmers uh, yesterday morning early calling up Radio National in severe distress about the next twelve months. Um, so that you know there's a whole lot of issues that are that are wrapped up in our lack of response to this environmental catastrophe and the the continual um, step backs away from guarantees and, you know, lowering the percentiles of our aims and being um, technology agnostic, which really means devoutly interested in coal. Um, So I think there is a tension there with, with war on waste where the onus is on the individual to start to make changes. I know they are going to some companies as well. I think they went to McDonald's 
What, what were they asking? About the straw use. The use of straws. I, I agree, I think. But, I, I mean, I don't think the show does put the onus just on individuals. It, it talks about change and even, like you mentioned, schools. So it goes to a school and looks at, you know, how the whole school is using waste and gets all, opens up all their bins and, you know, so that's... That's not even that's not really individuals as well. I'd argue that's about how does the whole school change their the way that they're using waste and how to workplaces and how to companies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think what I find really staggering about a lot of these kind of things is, even from a capitalist perspective, there is a huge market to invest in. Like you said about farming, okay. Well, why isn't there a company that is looking, you know, into mass distribution of solar panels or wind, you know, turbines and things like that in a way that is going to be able to, you know, just produce a package that can go to uh, each farmer that, you know, provides uh, all she of these kind of services. And brings down their costs because, in these times of struggle. Because, yeah, and you what you would be able to do is package these things in a way, particularly in farming or whatever, where you would get a subsidy from the government to for that company. You know, it's the coal industry is already happening. So put aside that that's, you know, probably as, as, as in as in the fa- the failure the, the no, demise no, no, but just, of it. that's it's an industry that's already happening. We'll put aside for a moment that it's an industry that probably needs to be removed and into something else. If you're a capitalist and you've got you're looking at new adventures, well, you don't. You're not going to get into coal. The the coal no. stations are already there. It's a dying industry. So why aren't you know why aren't those people investing into these new renewable energies in a way that's well, what, can have this impact where those rich people can still get money if that's their point, you know? Well, yeah, I don't think every single uh, thing in our society should the aim of it should be to make money for capitalists. I think sometimes we could provide services for the good of the community. That would be awesome. But you know, there 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 is an opportunity that I heard on Q&A where they were talking about algae and the way algae can be used for carbon capture, but it can also be used to make fibrous materials like clothing and cloth and twine, and it can be used as feed for animals, and it can be used as biofuel, and they talk about it as some like, like a closed circular system or something that creates no waste as it generates you know bucket loads of money they're always talking about as well but you know that there is it all we were talking last week or the week before i get confused about neoliberalism you know and this idea that governments can't run anything very well and that really it's about individuals making changes and it's bled into so many different facets of our of our lives like the environmental issue there isn't you know the um i forget the word that they always use but there isn't the certainty created by government from a, a platform, an investment platform, where companies had the, the certainty to invest in you know new technologies like algae, you know, for carbon capture and the creation of sustainable clothing and sustainable food for starving cattle at the moment in this drought. In the same way, all of our approaches, you know, we talk about this mental health catastrophe that you know I heard. Uh, Bob Murphy interviewing Julia Gillard over the weekend. She's now part of Beyond Blue, and there's so much there's so much information out there about like identifying if someone in your workplace or school or company is 
is not well, identifying that they're, they're not normal and intervening to make them normal again. But there's no discussion on why we have such a skyrocketing rate of anxiety and depression amongst people as young as eight. You know, what, what are we doing as a society to create these... <laughs> we, we talk about solutions. We talk about people changing their behaviour, but no one really wants to talk about the underlying causes of these environmental catastrophes, of this general malaise, of this, this misery even in very young people. And to me, I think it's about competition, aspiration, a lack of community connection, a lack of um, feeling feeling not invested but feeling a part of the society you live in you know whether that's joining a union or helping out a neighbor <laughs> just doing something that's good for others rather than always just good for yourself well we are listening to monday breakfast on 3cr and we're in the middle of our alternative news chat and we're talking at the moment about a couple of TV shows, one is Who is America, which is a Sasha Baron Cohen show, and The War on Waste. And yeah, I think The War on I wasn't necessarily advocating that the ideal solution is a capitalist market-based solution, but I just think that... I don't think it is. I just think that it's interesting that that isn't part of the discussion, because I would propose a different type of solution, of course, but we... We are quite a bit away from, you know, really having, you know, worker-run cooperatives that are taking over or, you know, putting back into government hands even the, these industries. So mm. even if there's going to be a market-based solution, why isn't there one? That Why aren't capitalists kind of seeking yep. that ground, I guess? Why would we want to be one of the 10 biggest arms dealers in the world instead of one of the 10 biggest producers of clean energy in the world? Right. Like and what, we, why we, would that be our aim? When, when did we decide as a country that we want to... We want, like, when did they take that to the people in a vote? Do you want us to invest $200 billion over 10 years in weapons or would you like us to invest $200 billion in 10 years into education or into green technology? And clearly Australia has the capability because of the kind of weather conditions and things that we have in the country to provide huge amounts of clean energy, you know, all through all of the different types of that are available. But no, that's not, yeah, as you say, that's not the choice that is being made. And, you know, war itself is one of the uh, greatest destructions yeah. to the environment. I see a couple of weeks ago that the American military is looking at making bombs that, uh, sorry, bullets that after they're fired they uh, go into the ground and they have a seed in them that plants a flower are you serious yeah that's that's weird <laughs> well anyway yes so, so we, we had we had smart bombs and now we have serene nature bombs in this in this ground zero in this blasted wasteland soon there will be a new forest. Just, just give it 30 years. I think, you know, what we've seen with energy as well is that clearly individual households' uh, energy bills are skyrocketing. They're massive. They're easily, be besides No, rent, no, James, that's not right. They're clearly the biggest expense that people are paying at James, the that's not right. They cancelled the carbon tax mm. and our energy, didn't, our, didn't they drop? That was the promise. Hang on. But we are in a budget emergency. Well, certainly or are we? isn't. Are we in a budget emergency? Hmm. Well, sorry to interrupt you. We, we, uh, 
we are certainly in a climate emergency, and I think that you know we do need to move towards solutions that are going to provide uh, you know a situation that's going to be beneficial for all of us. And yeah, I think that it's interesting anyway. I think that uh, I would recommend that people um, continue to watch those shows if if they are interested. But the War and Waste is really easy to to access. It's on ABC's iView, so uh, people should you know do that. And I I think that. It's true, like uh, Jackson mentioned before, about connectivity and community. And uh, Hugh McKay's new book talks a lot about the kind of uh, connectivity that we are losing um, with not being able to have interactions with our neighbours and the kind of things that those, you know, that's broken down. Uh, you know, chat to people at work, your neighbours, whatever. It doesn't have to be your actual next-door neighbour, people around you about this show and, and, you know, let's have discussions about kind of things that we can do together. And that, that I think that it can be a twofold thing of what we can do in our own homes to, you know, reduce waste and things like that. But also what are we doing? What are we going to do collectively to try to combat or pressure the government or combat things that corporations are doing? Mm. I think there's a really uh, noxious ad campaign being run by the National Australia Bank at the moment that tells people to just think about what you really want a bit more. Just think about what you want. But I would advise you to go and talk to someone else and talk about what they want and what you want collectively, like what we want all together, not what new trinket do you want, not do you want a Hilux in 12 months, not do you want to, you know, let's start talking about like what kind of society we want to live in what kind of education system we want to have, what kind of health system we want to have. I just want to, uh, before we wind up alternative news, I uh, we have spoken quite a bit on Monday Breakfast about uh, housing and um, we've spoken quite a few times to Mark O'Brien from the Tenants Union and um, there has been a suite of reforms announced. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of them, uh, you know, pass muster in the Senate. But... Uh, uh, Dan Andrews first flagged them at the Northgate by-election. It looks like they're going to uh, make renters be able to have pets. Uh, they're going to make sure that all rental uh, homes meet basic standards, which we've spoken about, including uh, heating and cooling, including uh, you know well-run electricity networks, smoke alarms. I've had a house that burnt down that I was renting. That was terribly frightening. Um functioning stoves which is a good one would have thought that was already on there also going to let um, renters put up pictures without asking their landlord they're going to cap rental bonds at one month's rent which i think is pretty good considering how incredibly high they are uh, in the in the inner city um and certainly the bond i think that sounds like a great thing as far as i'm aware though all of those other things are already under the residential tenancy act so why would there be 130 reforms if they're not so they're not reforms is what you're saying they're just repetitions the residential tenancy act over the last three years has been under review and there's been things being added to it so housing workers um people real estate agents government people within the industry have been working over the last few years to update that i'm pretty sure that that has already happened though i thought so they've banned rental bidding which is quite a good thing so you can't have people like up upping the, you know, there's a set rate that the landlord sets. You can't have someone come in and saying, I'll give you X amount more, supposedly. There's They're, really no way to um, do anything about that, though. In, because, in the real world? Yeah. There's no way. There's no body to make sure that these things are adhered to. So 
I think it's positive that, that this VCAT. conversation is happening. VCAT is the body, wouldn't it be, to make sure it's adhered, adhered to? But how many people feel comfortable to go to VCAT? I mean, that's a lot of these things well, are actually in the Residential Tenancies Act or, you know, when we're on public transport, the way that the PSOs behave or whatever. It's true that if you go to VCAT and challenge those things, most likely you win because they, they respect the fact that an individual citizen is there against this big body and that a lot of these systems do not work properly. But it's just, it's a, people get, need to get time off work or, you know, have the time to organise themselves in, a, you know, essentially a legal case to have the confidence to do that. I want to say one, one more change that has been made and it links into their, um, uh, the Royal Commission into Domestic and Family Violence is that uh, women living in rental properties that need to flee abusive homes uh, can break a lease without any penalty, uh, which I think is a really good change. Well, this has been Alternative News. We'll just play a couple of announcements and then we'll be back with our first interview of the morning. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, Unions, Feminism, Refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org. Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018. A 3CR supporter. CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Hope you're enjoying your morning. It's a little bit brisk out there this morning, but I think it will start to warm up as the day progresses. Now, State of the Union is an exhibition that's currently on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art. It explores the relationship of artists to political engagement through a focus on the labour movement and trade unions. Uh, the project uh, was supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria, also the City of Melbourne Arts Grants Program, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the National Tertiary Education Union and the National Union of Workers. And to have a chat about the exhibition which runs through till the 28th of October, so plenty of time to go and see it. We're joined by Jacqueline Dowdy on the phone. Good morning, Jacqueline. Thanks for joining us. Sorry. Good morning, Jacqueline. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Look, can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration uh, for this exhibition uh, and why you chose to focus on the relationship between unions and art? Usually my shows begin with one artwork that really affects me or um, inspires me. And I saw a film a couple of years ago by a Korean artist um, about the conditions of female factory workers in South Korea. So um, it was looking at textile workers and also a woman who was the first female welder who did an iconic 309-day protest against the layoff of workers in the shipyards in Busan. And this work left me crying in the gallery and I started looking at other artworks that looked at similar issues and the show began to form around that. I wonder, Jacqueline, was that film made in retrospect by an artist looking back at something that interests them or was the artist that made the work embedded in in the movement and in the action of that worker in South Korea at the time? In this case, it was an artist looking back, exploring a topic and very much informed by the experiences of his own mother who worked in factories, Um, so almost a, a tribute to her. But this exhibition includes works from both sides of that um, divide, really, and it it does become a bit of a divide in the show. Artists who are making work about a topic, and it happens to be unionism and workers' issues, and artists who did embed themselves in the movement. So there's a mix of contemporary works looking at the subject, and then there are works from two different historical periods that underpin the show and form a foundation for the show, two times in Australian history when artists really were working hand-in-hand with unions. The 30s, 40s and 50s, the artists from the social realist tradition who um, were very involved in the Communist Party and in workers' rights and their artwork reflected that. And the 70s and the 80s when there was a huge amount of cooperation and collaboration between artists and unions, largely inspired by um, new forms of government funding. So there was a program called the Art and Working Life Program that was jointly managed by the Australia Council and the ACTU. And its sole purpose was to encourage art about working life. So those periods are quite distinctive to Australian history and Australian labour conditions, and they form a really important historical underpinning to the show. Yeah, that's, that is a really interesting time when, I guess, trade unions were, were actually able to hire artists to work on, on the movements full-time. Mm. I'm curious, in the 30s and 40s period, were, were those artists workers themselves or was it more people, um, you know, maybe more from the intellectual and artistic classes being inspired by those worldwide movements and turning their eye towards workers' movements? Or was it art by the workers themselves? It was both. So people like Noel Cunahan were certainly um, trained as artists and worked solely as artists. But then there were um, what were called the wharfy artists who worked on the docks in Sydney um, who were members of the Waterside Workers' Federation, and also took art classes um, in the union's headquarters in the evening, taught by artists like Rod Shaw. Um, like, so Clem Millwood was both an artist and a dock worker, and so his art reflected those experiences. Uh, in the MUA building in North Melbourne, there's some 
amazing artwork that some of which is from the 1998 dispute and I say just then that some of the workers from uh, I guess from the New South Wales um, part of the MUA intertwined there as well I think it's really important and it's really interesting I guess to see at lots of union buildings that a lot of that artwork is still really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely, and there are a lot of artworks in the show that have been borrowed from union collections. So the AMIEU, the Meatworkers Union, the walls are just lined with extraordinary important artworks. I was walking around with mouth open in amazement, and um, so we have a number of social realist works from their collection and also more contemporary works. Um, And that was due to visionary people like Wally Curran and George Selaf. Wally built an extraordinary art collection for the Meat Workers Union. The CFMEU also has a huge collection and um, the union officials there are, are really knowledgeable about it and um, you can tell that they're all still very inspired by this history of patronage of arts and culture in the union movement. Yeah, it's probably not an association that people who haven't been involved in the union movement um, make automatically. A lot of the presentations of unionists in the mainstream media are of, um, uh, you know, kind of unrefined, um, they're quite classist analysis uh, or presentations, you could say. Uh, what, what was your intention in terms of bringing this connection of art and unionism to the public? Well, the representation of unions can lean towards very negative stereotypes. You hear about the court cases, royal commissions, you hear about corruption. But unions have made such strong contributions to social democracy more broadly and also to arts and culture. So probably not many people are aware that when Trades Hall in Melbourne opened, and it was the first Trades Hall building in the world, it was called the Trades Hall and Literary Institute. Mm. And it wasn't just about protecting workers' rights, it was about providing a venue for classes Um, and quite famous artists like Tom Roberts learnt to draw there. So this attention to um, the workers' movement, not just being about protecting working rights but about enabling a full and a rich life that included access to culture, to sport, to all of the things that make life work worth living, that was something that I didn't know so much about when I approach this project and I wanted other people who saw the show to learn about it too. So in addition to art, there's a lot of archival material that makes this clear, that um, illustrates to people that union officials like George Selaf, when he retired, became the arts officer at Trades Hall and was organising factory festivals, um, was advocating for more private patronage of the arts was advocating for libraries to Mm. collect books in different languages so that migrant workers had access to literature, a really rich and full and cohesive vision of what culture can contribute to society. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and I'm speaking with Jacqueline Dowdy, who's the curator of the State of the Union exhibition currently on at the Ian Potter Museum of Art. Jacqueline, I think another... uh, aspect that this exhibition really brings out and you've touched on a little but I wonder if you could expand on the the role that the unions particularly in the 1970s played in supporting the environmental movements and also played in supporting movements like uh, gay and lesbian rights. Mm. So the one the main thing that I touch upon in this show is the support of the green bands movement. So there's a work by Alex Martinez Rowe 
that includes documentary material from that period and looks at the way that the BLF was such a strong supporter of community groups in Sydney that were trying to protect historical buildings and also parkland. So would put bans on building sites, for example, in Woolloomooloo that um, were planning to tear down important buildings or to just destroy communities. And um, this movement was really successful. So that aspect of trade unionism of um, supporting broader social causes threads through the show. With um, gay and lesbian rights, Sam Wallman has done a work that particularly relates to the University of Melbourne's interactions over time with the union movement. goes right back to 1856 because it was at the University of Melbourne that stonemasons first downed tools and marched for the eight-hour day. Um, and also looks at a particular incident more recently when workers in the cafeteria at University of Melbourne went on strike in support of a student who was excluded from the student union but, um, because he had been seen kissing his lover in public. So it was a homophobic um, reprisal and the workers went on strike until he was reinstated. Mm. So these, these themes sort of thread through the show in different ways in the artworks. And one thing that I hadn't realised was that Melbourne's Trades Hall, um, one of the graphic designers on staff there in the marketing team, was the one who came up with the identity for the marriage equality campaign. Um, and th those sorts of messages, I think, are really important for people to realise that the contribution of trade unions is much larger than, than simply workers' rights. And I think that unity is particularly when you see it in a picture or, you know, through art that it it strikes you in a really powerful kind of way. One of the pictures you see uh, through the website is a image of a farmer and a worker, factory worker or, you know, that kind of thing, sort of embracing together and looking at each other and kind of a show of unity themselves. And, you know, I think that that, that image is still uh, something that is really powerful today with the kind of... Thing we talked about on the show earlier, the kind of thing that farmers are facing and the divide that can happen between a rural and urban workers. And, you know, that, that it can be really powerful to see that kind of image of bringing those people together and the impact that can have on those two people. Mm, absolutely. And another aspect to that is um, the NUW's campaign at the moment to support migrant farm workers. And mm. that's acknowledged in this show by banners that were made for the recent Change the Rules campaign by Indonesian farm workers up in the Golden Valley. But what made it so relevant to the exhibition was that it was two artists who based themselves out of Trades Hall, um, Sam Warman and Nikki Minus, who went up there and made the banners with the workers. So a more contemporary example of the way that artists are working outside of traditional cultural forums and embedding themselves in the union movement. It is interesting, it's, it's, and it's timely as well. You know, we are living in a climate uh, where the federal government regularly engages in, a, in attacks on the union movement. Um, we've seen the kind of uh, reforms that the Australia Arts Council, particularly under Brandis, to, you know, direct uh, Australian arts funding towards, you know, some pretty... I would say myopic uh, areas of interest. I know that they're, you know, they've announced some enormous sum of money to commemorate Captain Cook's landing, uh, mm -hmm. but I noticed that you know federal funding isn't anywhere on this exhibition's um, 
backers, you know, it's coming from Creative Victoria and many unions have poured money into it. Um, do you think we're going to see some change some you know with the with the current campaign around change the rules with people starting to you know with with so many different industries having uh, struggles around their conditions with such technological change environmental changes that are causing uncertain work environments you know can can you see a change in the arts area with more artists being concerned with these issues and and more desire from from funding bodies to to get these messages out there I think one of the main movements at the moment is coming through the National Association for the Visual Arts and it's around working conditions for artists, which in the same way that the Change the Rules campaign is is acknowledging that things have gotten to a a breaking point and um, it's time to renew the the workers' movement. Um, Artists are getting to the point where the, the uncertainty and the uneven working conditions across the creative sector are just becoming too much to bear. So NAVA are about to run a big conference to um, look at these these conditions overall and talk about ways to change them. That sense that things that things really have to change is is happening in the arts world too. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, a recent study done by Macquarie University has shown that creative workers earn about twenty percent less than the average Australian wage mm. that really is a huge problem. Yeah, and there's been some really troubling reports, you know, artists battling homelessness and, um, you know, I think the average wage for a writer, you know, a professional writer in Australia is, you know, less than $14,000 a year and that includes very successful writers, you know, at the very top mm. end of that tree. So it is, I remember hearing an interview with Ben Quilty um, around, you know, months ago now where he was talking about the support that, athletes get from the government you know kind of uh, they get high level training with no need to pay that money back to the AIS or VIS or you know any institute of sport uh, and then huge amounts of promotion and support from government bodies meanwhile artists you know take themselves through university or TAFE systems they have to pay that money back and there's very few you know major prizes and um, so it is you know it, it does make you wonder where the priorities lie. I think mm, there is a real imbalance, and the arts do contribute a, a great deal to the economy. Um, mm. it, it's the way that the National Gallery of Victoria has justified its funding for for a new venue, the amount of people it brings into Victoria to see into Melbourne to see its shows every year. Mm. But that doesn't translate to individual artists. It often translates to big government-funded infrastructure projects, mm-hmm. big new glossy buildings, mm-hmm. but the artists who are creating the work to fill those spaces often don't get paid for their work. Now, I have to ask you, Jacqueline, because I promised I would. Um, last week we spoke to uh, Van Rudd, who's a, um, a great uh, yes. socialist yes. artist, and he just would like to know why he didn't have a work in this exhibition and if, ah, and if he could so... possibly have one in the next. <laughs> of course he can. So... Um, we show a couple of works by artists in a collective he's a part of, the Workers' Art Collective. Um, so Nikki Minus and Sam Wallman have yeah. both contributed and we met with, and Mary Lunig as well. 
But as with any show, you can't include everyone. There are so many good artists from the 70s and 80s I couldn't include. So Jeff Stewart was very important in the mural and banner painting tradition, and I couldn't include him. I could only include um, Jeff Hogg and Megan Evans. There's always sad selections and exclusions that have to occur. It's but a, he, he it's was a cruel question. Yeah, <laughs> no, he was certainly one of the artists we were looking at, and... Um, just didn't have room for everyone. And I actually kept finding works right up to installation time. There was one work that I found in the last week of install and I was thinking, oh, could I possibly fit it in? I think my colleagues would kill me if I tried and, and so I couldn't. It's it's the um, one of the sadder parts of being a curator that, that you can't include everything that you find. It, it's funny. It's the tyranny of space. Maybe you could use a few more of those glossy big buildings. Totally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you um, so much for talking to us this morning, Jacqueline. And um, yeah, people who are listening, uh, the exhibition is running through till Sunday, the 28th of October. So get down. Uh, it's open Tuesday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 12 noon till 5 p.m. So thanks very much, Jacqueline. Have a nice day. Uh, thanks for speaking with me. Well, we are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and coming up next, we're going to have our regular program, which is Over the Wall. And as I said earlier, this week is looking at, or speaking from a conference that is talking about some of the issues with um, the NDIS and some of the, I guess, proposed changes for that. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today... We speak to Vern Hughes from Civil Society Australia about problems with the National Disability Insurance Scheme and specifically about a conference that group is organising in early September to start to address those problems. Vern Hughes, Director of Civil Society Australia, has been active in the fields of community-based healthcare, among other things, for many years. Through his work in these fields, as well as through being the parent of children with autism, he has an abiding interest in the NDIS and how it might be reformed. To this end, Civil Society Australia is hosting a conference in Melbourne on September 3rd and 4th called the Fixing NDIS National Conference. Vern outlined how the NDIS has misfired and went on to explain the motivation for the conference. NDIS has been talked about now for six, seven, eight years and it's been in operation for five. And the hope was that it would solve a lot of the problems in the disability area. Everyone knows that there have been a lot of stresses traditionally in the whole disability field, very inadequate services, services which were not tailor-made for each person but tended to be fairly institutionalised in character. And the NDIS was supposed to be a different way of doing all that that would change it and make things better. In reality, the implementation of it has been not what anyone expected and the sense of disappointment with it is very widespread so the question now is what do we do about that 
So this is one of the main things that the conference seeks to address. Do you have a specific agenda? The agenda is really to ask that question, what can we do to fix NDIS to get it back on track to what it was supposed to be and um, there'll be a whole variety of perspectives put forward about how to do that. There are a number of, I guess, aspects of what NDIS has tried to do where the intention has been right but the model has perhaps been flawed, it's been excessively bureaucratic, excessively rigid, it has all the features of the public service and when you apply those sorts of organisational dynamics into an area like disability you just tend to get outcomes that are not what people hoped for. So the question is what changes do we need to make to the structure of it, what changes do we need to make to the culture of it so that we get something that is a little bit closer to people's expectations of what it was going to deliver. So those will be the questions we'll be asking in this conference and we're doing that to get out of it, I suppose, a movement of people in the disability area who want to pursue change so that we get a shift in the way it's done. Next, Vern gave the lowdown on the conference. The who, the what, the when, the where and the why. Grab a pencil for contacts. This conference is organised by people in the disability scene who are participants in NDIS, their families, their supporters... And it's being run and initiated by people who are the consumers and the carers and people who are supporters. It's on the 3rd and 4th of September. It's in Melbourne at the Anglis Centre. And there's a schedule of fees which are staggered for users of services and families. It's very low up through uh, service organisations and service providers and others where the fees rise a lot. The point is we want to get a lot of grassroots people together to shape up an agenda that we can follow through that will make NDIS serve the goals it was originally set up to do. What would be the best first point of contact? Telephone, internet, is there a web address or a phone number? Yes, our best point of contact is the internet, civilsociety.org.au forward slash ndisconference.htm. Vern went on to detail his frustrations with bureaucracy as a parent of kids with autism and how the disabled community and its allies can organise to challenge the bureaucrats. Well, I have a personal interest. I've got three sons in their 20s now and two of them have autism and some mental health issues. So I've found myself in the role of parent and navigator of services on their behalf over many years. And uh, like a lot of other parents in this field, you experience the dysfunction in the service system and you know a lot of needs to change. And it's very difficult, I think, to get momentum for change in these areas because the services and governments tend to work closely together. Um, they tend to only think of consumers and users of services as an afterthought and they just have got stuck in that way of working over many years. So when you're in the role of being a user of service or a family member, you find yourself up against some big forces and they have vested interests. So we've just over the years found that we've just got to take a number of initiatives to get people together, to get people to come together, explore what can be done to change things and to try and develop our own agenda so that we're not all the time just chasing after 
a government agenda trying to say, hey, what about a voice for the consumers here and what about a voice for some carers over there? We want to try and get in front of that so that we put forward an agenda that is really person-centred, focused on the users of services and not always try to catch up to what governments and services are trying to do. Want to check out the conference? Google Civil Society NDIS Conference to find out more. Over the Wall aims to be at the conference to talk to a whole bunch of folks who are dealing with the NDIS. In the coming months, you'll hear more from us on the NDIS and more from Vern Hughes in particular. We thank him for his time and expertise. And that was Over the Wall, and it's a really interesting kind of take on what's happening, what was, you know, seemingly a really great scheme when it first came out. The NDIS has had all kinds of problems that have happened um, over the last few years, so I'd be interested to follow up what's happening with that over the next um, little while. And you are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. It's currently 10 degrees outside, and it's going to be getting to a top of 12 uh, rising up to a bit um, a bit warmer later in the week, up to 18 degrees on Friday. So that's always good. Um, but right now, we are joined by Anna, who's a member of Hospo Voice. And Hospo Voice is a hospitality union which has come out of uh, United Voice. And I guess United Voice has, um, you know, kind of evolved in a few different ways over the last few years to be... Uh, you know, I think Hospo Voice is a really it's a really exciting kind of break into the the union movement and something I think is really exciting for hospitality workers. So thanks a lot for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. And I guess yeah, I mean I, I've worked in hospitality a lot over the years, and I, I I'm excited by what the what the union um, you know is able to do and what what it might be inspiring for people to be able to be a part of the union. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I think a lot of people feel the same who have worked in hospo for a long time and know how common the exploitation is, you know, more common than not, actually, as our surveys have shown. And for them, the union is just kind of a breath of fresh air that's been needed for so long. Um, But I guess it's taken a while because we're working with a workforce that's quite hard to mobilise because, you know, people are dispersed across hundreds, thousands of small workplaces, changing jobs all the time. Um, A lot are also probably travellers or migrants. And um, 
So, yeah, it being a digital union means that we have like a whole new way of mobilising people, getting them all together. And I think that, like you said, that's been one of the issues in the past of people working in kind of small industry or small um, workplaces and also the kind of the nature of people working in hospitality is they may feel like it's a job that they might not be in for that long and so they perhaps don't want to invest or look into kind of the situation for that workplace but also maybe feel the need to join the union and like I said it's kind of the hospital voice website and the app and things like that have been able to kind of show a way of being able to like mobilize people in that way and bring people together even if it's online yeah it's it's bringing like unions um into like more into the digital world that we've all um you know us who are working in hospital at the moment have grown up with from when we were quite little and um yeah, like it's it's a way of it's great for mobilizing people at last minute to um you know come to the rallies that we plan or to share updates um about like law changes or if we get media um and we've got yeah like other not just the Facebook page but Facebook groups now for local areas um so that people can connect with workers in their neighborhood or the main street where they work. So there was a um mass meeting, I think it was last Monday. And I guess one of the things I know was spoken about at that was talking about, like you say, organizing in kind of the areas that people work in. And I think, you know, it's a really great way of connecting people together. And it seems like, you know, the union has been able to identify some of the ways that people already sort of work together, you know, that a group of people that work in cafes together kind of you know, maybe chat afterwards, after work or in their breaks and things like that. So it's already kind of a camaraderie there. And the union's trying to, I guess, you know, use that kind of thing to mobilise as well. Yeah, exactly. It's tapping into what we're kind of, the way we already kind of meet up and stuff. So um, the new plan for that is called Hospo Hoods. And yeah, it's... (laughs) So hip. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That'll get all the young ones in. And... um, yeah, so it's we've sort of started forming groups in sort of key areas around the city where there are, um, like where hospitality is a really big thing, like um, in around Carlton, Ligon Street, High Street, through Northcote, Thornbury, Preston, CBD. And um, yeah, the idea is that like we'll have the Facebook groups, but we'll also all be able to meet up in the same area, um, just like for coffee or something to chat in a place that pays fair wages obviously yeah. and um yeah um and then we can grow that way so that people can find their local group and um we we can like highlight the places in the area that are doing the right thing because it is like pretty much just under 25 percent of hospo workplaces at the moment that are actually paying the right wages um and also so that we can expose the bad bosses because I think after um, all the publicity we've gotten around recent high-profile cases, a lot of people are asking, like, so how could how do we know where the good places are? Mm. And so that's going to be one of our new things, like a certification by Hospo Voice. Yeah, nice. cool. Yeah, it was um, disturbing to see some of those flagship uh, restaurants and bars, you know, be revealed as, you know, wage theft being a big problem. And you've touched on that. James and I were talking earlier about the announcement to cut penalty rates. A lot of people's response in the industry was, 
what penalty rates, you know, as though the penalty rates were already not being paid. But what other issues, you know, in terms of these hospo hoods that you're setting up in the areas you've spoken about and in your experience without naming any names if you're not comfortable doing that, what are the common um, issues in hospitality workplaces to your mind? Well, I think, like, obviously underpayment is the main huge issue, but um, I think it's coupled with kind of, yeah, just a sense of, like, a lot of young people feeling too intimidated to stand up to things like that or um, bad treatment, like sexual harassment, that kind of thing. Hospo Voice has another um, uh, sort of branch called Respect is the Rule, which is about stopping sexual harassment in the workplace, um, which is, like, obviously also a huge problem. Um, And so, yeah, um, it's like... I I feel like it's just changing the entire culture because... um, you know, you can like, you can also have a boss that pays you the right wages, but just doesn't treat you well, and mm. you don't feel like you have the right to kind of stand up to that because, like, you could be threatened with being fired at any moment. Um, it's such a casualized workplace now um, that, like, a lot of bosses think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And um, mm. yeah, like, I guess our generation has grown up um, in a time where union membership is like at an kind of an all time low. And so we haven't we haven't grown up like knowing about unions and the power of unions. Um and like it's it's never been normal for us to, you know, when we get a job, say, get handed a union form, which mm. um a lot of older people have told me like that was just standard practice mm. a couple of decades back. Um So what was your path to, to join in the union as a young person and in in the climate that you're describing? Well, I didn't know about Hospo Voice before, um, like, I guess guess the, um, yeah, I found out about Hospo Voice when I had all my shifts cancelled at the cafe I worked at, um, a cafe called Barry in Northgate, where I'd been working for um, about a year and a half, Um, I'd gone travelling in the middle but then come back, and um, when I'd taken the job there, I hadn't known that I was being underpaid which I think is pretty common. Um, I heard they told me the rate, which was 17 an hour. And um, I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty standard because I'd heard that from a few other friends. And, like, of course it was standard because, like, it is the standard to underpay people in the industry. Mm. Um, And so eventually a friend told me to check the Fair Work website and look at the rate that I should have been getting. Um, And I was really, like, astonished to see how much higher it was than what I was getting paid. And so for a while, I didn't do anything about it. But um, because of what I was talking about, like, feeling too scared and intimidated. um, But, yeah, then we kind of – we all ended up mobilising together in – in our workplace, um, all of us front of house staff and demanding a meeting with our bosses to talk to them about our pay and our rights. Um, and like, yeah, we never got that meeting because right from the beginning they were refusing us over and over, intimidating us, um, like doing everything they could to stop us even getting to that first step. Um, and so eventually when five of us got fired or had our shifts cancelled, we, um, found out about Hospo Voice because they helped us to hold like a rally outside um, the cafe to expose them to the whole street because they were the most popular cafe in the street. And um, yeah, that really like 
that was that really turned the tables and that was my first experience of seeing what the power of a union could do and i think that thing of um <coughs> what's really important is is mobilizing with the other people at your workplace i mean you know sometimes that's not always possible and people should still you know stand up for their own rights and, and with their union but that kind of thing of mobilizing with other people at at your workplace and then having the union support and i think that you know that's a really kind of powerful feeling and it's something that you can really take with you to anywhere else you go to know that the power of kind of solidarity together. Yeah, exactly. Like um, for me, it, it felt like I was kind of joining something that I'd only heard about in its early history. Like I'd studied Australian history in high school and we'd learnt about the start of the union movement, but they hadn't really continued the story beyond like the start of last century. And so I didn't realise that it was still such an amazing, passionate movement. And um, especially with Hospo Voice, when you join, it's at the moment, it's not like you're joining a union that's been around for ages and is already fully formed. You're joining something that's just starting to gain momentum. And um, you get to like, yeah, for, for us to sort of get to um, live that amazing historical moment moment of the start of a new movement is really exciting for young people. Well, you, you mentioned before about the through the website some of the um, digital tools that are available for members, and so some of the, there's the pay checker, the record my hours, and the harassment diary. Um, maybe we be able to explain, I guess, like how those things work and what they what they are to people. Yeah, so the pay checker. Um, shows all of the correct rates that you should legally be getting paid on weekdays, weekends, public holidays. Um, there's so many rules that um, I didn't even realise existed, like you should get paid more after 10pm, say, mm. and stuff like that, and overtime, breaks, everything like that. So you get access to all that information um, depending on, yeah, like whatever your specific position is. And um then harassment diary, um, yeah, that's like from the respect is the rule um, part of things. So like you can log if an incident happens in your workplace um, and then you can take that up later, like report it or whatever, just so you can like hold hold people to account. Um, and uh, what what was the other one? The, um, the oh, yeah, the record my hours. Yeah. Um, so that's because like... That that's sort of so you can record the hours you work and on what days because um I mean that would have been really good for me to have because um mm. at the moment like I I can't really say much but we're all trying to claim back pay and um we can't like we don't have access to information that says like the days we worked whether it was weekends or weekdays and that kind of thing. Um, which is kind of important to calculating how much money we're owed. And so, yeah, pay checker, no, sorry, record my hours means that you keep your own record of that and you don't just have to rely on your boss. It's a really interesting life school skill, the recording of things that happened to you and conversations that you had. It's not really something that people tell you about at school, but often as you, you know, get older and you end up in some confrontational relationships, it becomes really important to to document what happened because if you don't have documentary evidence people won't listen to i just think it's one of those aspects of our society that's overlooked because if people knew they would be able to stand up for themselves a lot better in certain situations so 
I think that's great that they're providing a simple tool to keep a record of what's happening with your employer so that you um, are on an equal footing with them who often has people hired like accountants and things like that to keep records in ways that suit them but you need to keep a record yourself so I think that's a really clever tool for hospital voice I also just want to say on the point of being on the cusp of a new you know the birth of a new thing we you know it is such an interesting time where the service industry is expanding so massively you know we have this massive casualization issues and so many you know young and old people are working in these industries with very little regulation and oversight not just in hospitality or, or traditional hospitality but also um, uber eats and you know share ride drivers and all these different types of industries so it's really important that we have agile um, representation, and I, and I hope Hospital Voice is going to be one of those uh, organisations. Well, I think one of the other things I found really interesting is, you know, we've seen the kind of cases of some of the um, workplaces that are, you know, have got a negative um, campaigns around, and I think that that's really great to highlight those things. But I was interested as well, I saw last week that the Dan O'Connell was listed as a, a great place to work, um, and you know, good to give them a shout out because um, they do know, good poetry nights, don't they? They, they do. Mm. Um, I used to live around the corner from there. It's a it's a lovely pub, um, but it, it's great to also give um, an idea not not just for the employers, but for workers to know where are places that are, are good to work as well. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not just for people that want to know where they can go out to eat or whatever it's obviously for you know us um to mm. know if we want to if we want to um change jobs or something where's actually good to go yeah and I, I think that that it's a really important part of campaigning in general to kind of have a i guess you know it's a positive kind of spin on what's happening as well and it's good you know there's a lot of negative stuff that's happening in society and in the world but to highlight those kind of things is really important um, but I think, you know, what I, it's, there's other things about hospital voice, which I think is making it kind of, you know, it's quite an affordable price for people to, to join as well. Oh, yeah. Um, which I think that for having worked in the hospitality industry for a long time and trying to unionize different workplaces that people who are working kind of casual basis, they're at uni or, you know, they're international students and different things that are kind of in a precarious financial situation that, the cost of joining the union is has been a, a factor in the past, so I think that that's something that's really important as well. Yeah, it's only nine ninety nine a month. Um, you know, cost of a pint of beer, although you will end up drinking a lot more beer with all your new union mates. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, first month is free, so it's kind of like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know people should, and and there's. Um, I think at the moment it's mostly concentrated in Victoria, Hospital Voice. And is there um, opportunity or looking to expand kind of nationally in the future? Um, I really hope we can expand, maybe probably with the help of United Voice, um, because every time we have a rally, like the Hospital Voice Facebook page just gets inundated with messages mm. from hospital workers all over the country being like, can you come and do this at my workplace and yep. that kind of thing. So, and yeah, um, which, yeah, of course, we know from the survey we took about how rife underpayment is, like, of course, there'd be that huge demand. And so um, I really hope we can 
like expand, but I'm not sure how far off that is. And I guess looking towards um, the kind of couple of elections coming up, we've got the state election in Victoria and then, you know, sort of early to mid next year we'll have the federal election. You know, what do you think we're going to see in terms of, you know, perhaps like penalty rates, um, you know, could be wound back or from, you know, if, if Labor does win the election, do you think, you know, is that something that Shorten might try to um, support kind of rights for hospitality and um, service workers or...? Um, I really hope so, yeah. And we also had the commitment from Daniel Andrews to make wage theft a crime um, mm-hmm. if he's re-elected in Victoria, um, which would just be amazing because, like, you'd kind of think wouldn't wage theft be a crime anyway, but it's it's actually, like, it's actually not. It's kind of, you know, a technically... Civil, a civil penalty or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, like, technically against the law to... to underpay your workers but then if you get caught all you get is a slap on the wrist and then and pay it back there's no actual kind of criminal yeah yeah yeah. there's no penalty for like incentive not to do it again and i think see like a lot of hospitality owners that you know they can just factor some of those things into their calculations we saw a little while ago that um you know things like the heritage listing of a famous pub in carlton being ignored and knocked down and then they're able to just pay the fine. You know, it's sort of the the industry or, you know, the society is allowed these industries to kind of flourish like that. There's so many um, owners kind of run a cafe into the ground and then just move just before it's about to kind of totally die. They just move to another place and open up a new cafe and just let that kind of money flow around with, you know, really total disregard for people that are actually working there. Yeah, it has, like, actually become a business model, which is just disgraceful. And also, um, yeah, we hear a lot of talk about how, like, we should expect that with the casualization factor of the workplace. But, I mean, it, the way I see it is, like, yeah, the workplace nature may be changing, but, like, basic human needs aren't. Like, we're still the people doing all the hard work in these places that are getting Melbourne's amazing, like, food and coffee and, like, hospo reputation. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, like, we... It's not okay for us to um, lose our work rights just because the workforce has changed. I got so frustrated the other day. I was talking to an acquaintance and I was talking about this issue about the cutting of penalty rates and, you know, huge wage theft, particularly in that industry. And the response from this person was, oh, but, you know, if people were paid correctly, then when you go out for a meal, it would be 45 or $50. And I, and I was like, well, maybe that's what it should be. If, that, if that's the cost of, of paying people a living wage, you know, and, and the wage they're entitled to, perhaps we just need to understand that the idea of eating out Every single night is not a is not a god given right. You know, it's a, it's a luxury and 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 it should be treated as such. I'm not trying to destroy what is a, what is a booming <laughs> industry, but there, there's got to be a balance there between the person. You know, I, I just think there's got to be as this industry grows, and it is a complex job. You know, I've worked a lot in hospitality, you know, as James has, and it's a 
it's a hard job to do well. It's a hard job to do regularly. You're often working when everyone else is relaxing. You know, you're 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 being that person bringing the cheer and and bringing the good humour while everyone else has a good time. But you're on the clock. Like I just think we need a bit more. I would like to see a, an annual waiters and chefs day where everyone who's never been a waiter or chef goes into the kitchen and and pre- prepares meals for waiters and chefs who sit down and enjoy. <laughs> no chef would let that person come into their kitchen. <laughs> I think it's a it's, pipe dream. Look, it, I think an, it's interesting, but I, I don't think that it, it doesn't need to be. The costs don't need to be, um, you know, associated to the consumer because, you know, if you look at coffee, for instance, that it's such a it's such a minuscule amount that it costs to actually produce that coffee, and the rest of that is is going to the boss. And you know, I think that yeah, perhaps like we were talking about the energy kind of things before, perhaps we need to look at other models of of running industries as well, of cooperatives and things like that to actually put money back into, mm. you know, the workers. Yeah, on that point though, I don't, I don't think it's always a no-no to say things. I understand that cost of living pressures are, pressures are really serious, but this kind of race to the bottom idea that everything should be super cheap, like when you say a cup of coffee is really cheap and all the proceeds go to the boss, like what about the workers in other countries that are producing those coffee beans? You know, there, I just feel like there are, you know, costs involved in producing anything and we need to be you know aware rather than just thinking that everything is going to be really cheap and affordable because that's what we want it to be well yeah i think that's a that's a much bigger discussion that we perhaps can't get totally into today um but i i yeah i'm really excited by what hospital voice is doing and i hope that for you know people young and old that it is something that inspires people to feel proud to work in hospitality industry and to have a union that is going to stand up for your rights at work and to be supportive for you and i think that you know that's a really important thing that i think that perhaps people haven't had um for a long time and yeah i, I think it's great that united voice are supporting um putting some effort into that because you know perhaps they haven't been um great at doing that in the past with supporting hospitality workers in other than you know kind of big industries so i think it's it's a really exciting time um well i think um we that's about all we have time for on this segment so i really um appreciate coming in thanks anna it's been yeah thanks for having me it's been great talking about it everyone join (laughs) yeah well it's great to to hear stuff about the union but to also hear um you know your story as well about um working in the sector it's it's um you know that's really great thanks for coming in thanks well we're just going to go um quickly to an announcement and then we'll come back and we'll start to wrap things up we know you love our 3cr radical radio t-shirts and so do we they're a bargain at 20 dollars for adults and 15 dollars for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Seventeen eighty eight down Sydney Cove, 
first boat people land And they say, sorry boys, I gained your loss Well, gonna steal your land If you break down, you British law Work your life like a combi With a chain on your neck and hands And they told us Whoa, black woman, I shall not steal Hey, black man, I shall not steal Gonna civilize black barbaric life And we teach you how to move But your history couldn't hide the genocide But my pocketsita was It's a contradiction that's understood by none. Mostly that left hand holds a Bible, the right hand holds a gun. That's, oh, black woman, I shall not steal. Said, hey, black man, thou shalt not steal. We're gonna civilize your black barbaric lives, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide. The hypocrisy was.
That was Kev Comedy, Thou Shalt Not Steal, and it's great to hear Kev's um, voice again. And there's a really great uh, double CD that came out a few years ago, which has Kev Comedy's kind of the best of, and then the other side is uh, other Australian artists doing covers of his songs. I suggest everyone check out. Mm, That's really good. Really reminded me of Tangled Up in Blue. Hmm. Well, uh, well, we're coming to the end of our show, and um, thank you, everybody, for um, listening in. Thank you especially to Anna and Jackie for being guests on the show. It was great to have a chat to both of them mm. and um, Over the Wall for producing the content for our show. Yeah, the NDIS is a really interesting one. Someone was telling me the other day that if you have access to the disability pension through Centrelink, you're not eligible for NDIS funding, which I was shocked by. Yeah, so as far as I understand, it's about individually being able to choose the carers that support you rather than being chosen um, beforehand. But from what I from what I understand, it it actually just creates a lot of work for people who need the services. So yeah, interesting. I'll be I'll be interested to find out next week because um, it's going to be continued that story. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear the what they find out at that the conference to fix what is what has become a stuck and broken rollout of that very necessary service it's very frustrating when there is bipartisan support for something and there seems to be support from the community that it's going to be helping and then it all falls in a heap but it's been a good show thanks james did you want to quickly mention something no i think we've run out of time we can talk about it next week well thank you everyone for joining us and please listen next to women on the line and continue to listen to 3cr particularly we'd like to give a shout out to the rest of the breakfast shows um, Mm. coming up obviously uh, for the rest of the week Um, and we'll be back next week so have a good rest of your day Mm. all the best